Welcome to the dignity of suffering. Have you ever been brought to your knees by the challenges of life? What if you could enter the world of the therapist, be a fly on the wall, and hear their stories and insights into life's biggest challenges? Discovering a place to learn from the experiences of others who've tried to find dignity in their suffering. Each week, Mitchell Smolkin takes a candid look at the trials and tribulations of being alive. Mitchell is a registered psychotherapist, author, and speaker. He hopes to show that slowing down and becoming curious about our human experience can enrich our perspectives and plant our feet more firmly on the ground. Now, here's Mitchell. Welcome to the second episode of my podcast. I want you to keep in the back of your mind throughout today's episode a phrase that I coined which I believe is at the center of most of my work. Where language fails, symptom prevails. The notion, of course, is not mine. We have inherited a rich wisdom from others who have tried to understand the power and intelligence of our body. Let me explain. Almost 20 years ago, the Canadian physician, addictions expert, and now proponent of a therapeutic modality called compassionate inquiry, Dr. Gabor Mate, was writing controversial articles about the intersection of our personality structures and physiological distress. Simply put, he was trying to bring people's attention to the complex relationship between our life experience and what happens to us physically. Although he faced a lot of criticism for examining such debilitating illnesses such as ALS, also known as Lou Gehrig's disease, in a psychological light, where there was concern that he might be blaming the patient, his thinking was an evolution of over a hundred years of evidence of the connection between our bodies and psychological pain. This culminated to some extent in his book, When the Body Says No. And if you tune into my podcast at the beginning of June, I will be interviewing Dr. Mate and discussing his important contributions to the field of psychology. You see, there was a pivotal evolution in the 19th century that still echoes today and underscores a lot of the work that I do as a psychotherapist. It is an important shift to understand and appreciate because it helps us come to terms with our dislocation from containers such as religious institutions and ideas that previously may have held our anxiety and discontent. In my interview today with psychotherapist, author, and meditation teacher Charlene Jones, we delve into this important idea. What happened in the 19th century is that it was discovered that major physiological disease, such as paralysis, could be shifted through suggestion. That if someone was paralyzed on the left side of their body, it could be transferred to the right side of their body by suggesting this to them. I'll say this again. Patients who were suffering from debilitating physical illness could move the illness to different parts of their body by someone telling them to do so under hypnosis. This is where a term you might have heard of, transference, originated in the treatment rooms of the French neurologist Jean-Martin Charcot. 
This is where Sigmund Freud visited and was deeply affected by what he saw, and it profoundly shifted his own views on the manifestation of physical symptom and our psychological life. Remember, Freud was a neurologist up until this point. If we do not appreciate this seismic shift in our understanding of physiological distress, contemporary psychotherapy and the incredible shift towards a focus on the body and somatic manifestations will be uprooted from its foundations. This connects to today because so many people are in a wild goose chase trying to find medical answers for a whole host of physiological distress, particularly for issues such as fatigue, digestive problems, headaches, cardiovascular complications such as high blood pressure and the like, never mind the more life-ending diseases that Dr. Mate was trying to bring attention to, such as ALS. Another Canadian, psychiatrist Dr. Alan Abbas, catalogs the inherent ways that the body protects against pain. It's in his groundbreaking book, Reaching Through Resistance, where he talks about involuntary muscle systems. What he is referring to and trying to help us appreciate is that the more profoundly our body is generating symptom, such as those in responses that are completely out of our control, the higher the degree of protection we are enlisting so that we do not experience our grief directly. This really cuts to the heart of this podcast, and it's important that these comments are not interpreted as an attempt to blame human beings for their maladies or to explain physical illness away by talking about emotions. Dr. Mate named his methodology Compassionate Inquiry because without a radical empathy for the parts of us that are doing their jobs to keep us safe, there is no way out. Similarly, in Dr. Abbas's work, there is a constant reminder that when he is reaching through these incredibly powerful defenses, he is aligning himself with the fundamental goal of the individual, which is to feel better. In this case, feeling better may mean bearing an incredible sadness, but the body experiences tremendous relief when we can embody our pain in a direct and articulated way. This is why I named this podcast The Dignity of Suffering, because if we do not elevate and respect the ways that we attempt to survive, even if they cause us incredible distress, they will push back even harder. A common example of this is a term we hear very often, imposter syndrome. Someone realizes that they are driven by a fear that they will be found out as a fraud and no matter how much they achieve, how much positive feedback they get, they still carry this dragon that tells them not to let up, lest they be revealed as a fake. On closer analysis, though, we have to give a lot of credit to this part of the self that is driving one to succeed, and no wonder if they do well, this part does not relax. The positive feedback and success are like a buffet for this attitude because it says, see, I told you I would protect you. I told you I would never let you down. Keep at it. If you keep working this hard, 
no one will ever discover who you really are. So keep it up. I remember when I was doing my comprehensive exams, a set of seven exams for my psychoanalytic training, I was so intent on doing well. I had downloaded lectures, so even when I was driving, I would be constantly immersed in the material. At one of my exams, there was a question that clearly my examiner had a particular answer in mind for, and if I did not answer it exactly, I would be docked a mark. Lo and behold, I didn't respond in the way he wanted, and I was docked. This was my only blemish in this round of exams, but don't you know it, I focused on this almost exclusively. I was mad, I felt he had been rigid, and that I had answered him satisfactorily. And then it hit me. I had thought I was studying to do well, to succeed, to show off my knowledge and accomplish a long-standing dream of mine, which of course were many of the factors, but there was a huge piece missing. I was studying hard, also so I wouldn't be exposed, humiliated, seen as stupid. This little crack in the armor exposed my own feelings of being small and potentially confirming a deep fear that I held of not being a good enough person. Well, that didn't seem like a good reason to do anything. I understood I was protecting myself, but at what cost? At the same time, there was an incredible dignity in me working hard to take care and protect myself. The issue, though, and this, I think, is one of the most important ideas I will cover throughout this podcast, is that this way of going through the world leaves us incredibly vulnerable in our life circumstances. A part of us is always waiting for the shoe to drop, and there are so many aspects of our life where we have little to no control. Illness is a major one. And the problem with being so defended against humiliation when it comes to illness is that when we are sick, we need to reach out to others for help. We need to be vulnerable. But if we have to go from vehemently protecting ourselves one day to needing others the next day, things get very complicated. And this is where prolonged and chronic conditions come into play. An internal war gets set off between the part of us that has always longed to be comforted and soothed and the part of us that has been warning us for possibly decades against needing others too much. The fact is that inviting others to come in and soothe us for many, many people is a very dangerous and uncomfortable proposition. It is my belief that the energy expended trying to solve this conflict causes tremendous distress on the human body and manifests as fatigue, distraction, and a general sense of feeling lost and disoriented. It is often when one enters psychotherapy because the old defenses no longer work. Today, I will share with you parts of my life where I needed a container to go through my own grief. I was tremendously fortunate to meet today's guest, Charlene Jones, when I did. 
because I needed someone who could simultaneously have compassion for my situation whilst providing the boundaries necessary to pass through it. This combination of grief and structure planted a seed in me that I hope is growing into a meaningful contribution to our shared attempt at understanding and bearing the thresholds in life that are presented to each of us in our own journeys. Charlene was also prompted in her life to have to dig deep and to build a container for her own experience. And she took up the challenge and has parlayed those experiences and the knowledge into a career as a writer, therapist, and profound teacher. I will let her tell you in her own words what she has come to learn about the dignity of suffering. So I feel like this interview was many years in the making. I don't know if you had asked me when we met if we'd be sitting here this many years later talking in this way. I certainly may have. I tend to jump time loops quite a bit. <laughs> That's why. That's why I'm having you on this show. This is Charlene Jones, the time loop leaper coming out to the world. It's the way I mask my inherent confusion about everything. <laughs> I've been thinking quite a lot about how to start today's conversation. And there are many things I want to ask you. There are things that I would like my audience to know about you because I think the world is a better place because you are in it. Thank you so much. And I mean it. And as you know, every time that that realization comes back to me, I try and take at least 10 seconds to write to you and let you know that that's exactly how I feel and what's happening. And that doesn't mean to say that it's simplistic or always one-sided, but uh, certainly fundamentally that is um, a great belief of mine. Thank you. And if it's okay with you, I, I wouldn't mind beginning today's interview by letting people know a bit about how we met. Before we jump into maybe the different facets of our lives, how they've intersected, our shared interests, and obviously giving them a picture of you as a writer, mentor, an incredible professional, and a profound thinker. And my hope by the end of the interview that people really have a sense, those that don't know you already, of what you bring and the perspective that you share. And I promise you that I will give you tons of time to speak, but I've I've been really reflecting on something that isn't easy for me to talk about, to be honest, but considering the name of this podcast being The Dignity of Suffering, and what I hold to be true in terms of what has inspired me with the people I work with, in my own family, maybe myself from time to time, <laughs> is taking risks. And so I can't really talk about you or this podcast without sharing a particular intersection of our lives and really in many ways the reason we're sitting here today. And to be honest, over the years, very few people, I could probably count uh, on a couple of fingers, uh, have really known about 
the experience that you and I shared, and I think that set my life in this direction. I always say that you saved my life. That is the way that I introduce you to people when I talk about you. But that may not really have grounding unless people know actually what I mean. And so if you'll just give me a couple of minutes to maybe just share this and then we can jump in together. There were many ways that we knew each other and some more benign than others, including for everyone that's listening, Charlene is one of my best friend's mother. And I met her in that context in high school. And her son, Chad Danella, is an incredible man, talented and one of the most loyal people that you will ever meet. But that is not really how I got to know Charlene. How I got to know Charlene was that when I was about 18, my girlfriend became pregnant in high school. And if it sounds like I'm talking about this calmly, it is not at all what is happening underneath or the number of times I have asked myself if this is even worth bringing up or appropriate. But something tells me deep down it's, it's very appropriate to talk about this because the whole notion of the dignity of suffering, I think, started for me that day when I was trying to deal with this in my life was completely lost. That's not entirely true. I had instincts about how to get through this and do it in a respectful and conscientious way. But the piece that was missing, and I understand there are a lot of opinions and thoughts about this, but I hope you'll bear with me and respect the decision that I had to make. But we decided to have an abortion because we were young and it was unplanned. And I don't actually think that this child would have had a fair shake in life had we gone through with it. And I realize that's a risk to talk about, and certainly people have a lot of strong feelings about that. But this is about truth, and it's about transparency. The hardest part about that was that when her family found out, I was completely barred from that process. And to, to this day, the excruciating pain of not being able to see something through that I knew back then was a very difficult decision still reverberates inside of me. Gabor Mate, who I'll be interviewing in June, I heard him talk about his birth in Hungary and how after all these years in his 70s, he still shakes and there is still the hum of that part of his life. And this has existed for me, sometimes in the rearview mirror, right behind me, and other times very far away. But it has never left me. And the part that I want to share with you, which for me, really is emblematic of Charlene's gifts, is that you, Charlene, offered me a home. You didn't just offer me a home. You somehow, and this is what I want to talk to you about today, <laughs> you somehow knew that this needed structure around it. There was certainly love, but there was also a sense that this needed dignity and a space. 
And you created a ritual for me in your home, including collecting wood and then sitting down in front of your fireplace and me talking into that fire to this child that wouldn't come into this world. I still remember in that moment simultaneously feeling broken, but also that the grief that was coming out of me had a place to go. It's it's actually visual in my mind. I actually think I I imagined color and light and that that the words and my wishes that were being spoken into your fireplace were real. And I know, and I've always known, that you giving a home for that experience in the most dignified way, it grounded something in me. It gave a certain respect and dignity to my own learning process and understanding what I was going through that I'll never forget. And you said something else to me, which I think I may have said to others after, when they have come into my life or my practice and graced me with the, the trust to, to sit next to them. And you said to me, there's no turning back. Th things are different now. And even saying it out loud to you right now, I think I understand a bit more about the ways that the status of our lives change and the need to at least be aware or conscious of that so that we can give a dignity to, to what we are going through. So it was important to me in us talking for people to understand that a lot of what I want to know about today and to hear about has to do with how you have disseminated and continue to disseminate your work to the world, and that you do it from an incredibly honest place, but that our relationship goes back, first of all, a very long time. <laughs> and I could not have imagined the manifestation of such a respectful, direct and strong container for me to become the person I am today. So I want to thank you before we start talking and to let others know that this conversation today, the reason I'm starting with you as the first person that I'm interviewing on this podcast is because this is where it began. And so if I'm going to have any success at communicating what I've learned, I can't do it without you. So thank you for being here in, in all the ways that, uh, that that means for me. Thank you so much. That's an amazing introduction and really opens up the personal level. And I can only assure you that this is a two-way, always. The illusion that we create something for someone else is an illusion. When we create anything of empathic or deep, loving nature, we create it equally for ourselves. You know how often you bring me to tears when you talk about it past and the profound effect you've had on I had on you you had on me we had and I think that that's a really good place to begin in spite of that we need containers we need deep strong powerful containers 
because we have to go inward. I just wanted to address very quickly the historic use of churches and synagogues and temples and various kibas and buildings to allow us to gather together. And in those gatherings, we created a collective container that kept us feeling safe, that kept us feeling uh, belonging, and kept us believing that some among us were more gifted at human integrity than the rest of us. And in our times, that has all fallen. And that is a profound loss. Profound loss with no apparent redemption. However, with all of the transparency occurring at the levels of the Vatican, at the levels of all of the Buddhist people, all the people who proclaim to be leaders, we find that those people also have shadow aspects, are riddled with human behavior that is given to exaltation and greed and corruption. And that is the way it is. And so at our times, all of those institutions that we went to have crumbled, including universities. They're no longer places that are based in learning, but in how much money you have. And so we have to do something differently. And I think as always in our history, we have to turn differently. And that's always hard for us because we like our habits. Hmm. And we have to turn to ourselves, each of us individually. You took a lot of time to discuss the word abortion. You took many sentences to include others in their varied opinions in the word abortion. And those time-taking concerns are really appropriate for our time because we no longer can assume that everyone has the same beliefs. We no longer can assume that everybody agrees with us. We have to say, okay, I may not be right for anybody else. I may not have any answers for anyone else, but I have to tap into the vertical. I need to tap into what is highest in my being and try to work from there. The thing about it being high means that it's low. It means that you have to dig deep, and in digging deep, you make your container. You make the personal container, which is your body. We are born with this gifted body. This body is gifted with amazing capacities. One of its abilities is a GPS that works not only for you, but for everybody you love. And it may go beyond that. I've only experimented with it with people I love. Hmm. I know what's going on with them. And talking together is just a confirmation for me of what I already know. This happens over and over. It's not, I'm not special. We all have this. Can I come in, Char? I know you're talking about this now. I know that you can talk about it with perspective and and a kind of knowledge and certainty because like you said when when you trust these instincts there's an incredible power in terms of connection and and the fact that it something will unfold the way that it needs to. But I do, I know that that wasn't always the case for you or that you had to come to this in your own way to know these things. And I was rereading your book, My Impossible Life, preparing for this today. 
And, and I wonder if you could talk about how you came to this place. How did you know or come to learn that grief, vulnerability, helplessness, pain needed four walls around it? Because I love your analogy to temples and to synagogues and these structures that emerged around the world, sometimes unwitting to other cultures, that people were all building spaces. And the fact that we can't really put the genie back in the bottle, we are and have emancipated in many parts of the world from living in this way. And of course, it's a very Jungian idea, I think, that Carl Jung talked about the religious function and how that, even if the buildings are no longer places we visit, they visit us in dreams, they visit us in our longings for structure. And so I'm curious if you could talk a bit about when, when you realized that this was necessary. Well, um, I was born with a lot of holes in my head. And one of them was a hole for the Celtic lineage that gave me visions from the time I was a child. But it made me very different, and that made me alienated. I was given a hole in my head which has the term academic excellence on it. So being like unusually smart academically also alienated me from everyone around me. And when I was five, I had three dreams. They recurred, and they were nightmares. And I knew upon waking that they were the most important part of my life to date. I knew that nobody in my environment understood them. I couldn't go to anybody and tell them about these dreams because I knew exactly what these people would say. So I put the dreams away the way that you them away. And when I was 16 and I had ran away from home, I ran away from home in the middle of the night. Now that's a kind of interesting moment in life because we typically say, if you do not function well in the culture, it is a breakdown. But my understanding to this moment is that I had a breakthrough. I no longer was able to be in the culture because it was too small for what I was going to do. And that meant I had to go into the unconscious of material form. I had to meet with a destiny in that I got into a car that was driven by two men who were armed felons. And in the three days they held me hostage, I watched them as they splayed a man with a shotgun, specifically a shotgun because it was not a tidy single hole that might have killed the man. It was a and then I was raped and I was tied to a chair and tortured over I don't know how many hours but I was bitten and bruised and slapped and made humiliated and various things went on I had no clothes on except a pair of panties and somehow I got out of that and the ironic thing that has only recently occurred to me is that's the basis upon which so much of my confidence rests now, for a long time, that confidence was wild, as you can imagine. I was very feral. We call it PTSD. And yeah, we didn't have a name for it in those days, but it was. And I was testing how close could I get to death. When you speak about the death of your unborn child, 
and the words that I said in that day, it's because I understand a little bit about what death does when we accept it. And you had raised an altar to honor that soul upon, so you had accepted the passing. And the first time we recognize death and, and do that, it changes us forever. In our lives, we can no longer pretend that this is permanent or that this is going to carry on, the, the party will keep going. And so I traveled with this contentious and very difficult meditation teacher, whom I did not trust, by the way. But then again, trust was very few and far between, you can imagine. But he was traveling all the time, and so I traveled with him and had many, many extraordinary adventures, including being in Tibetan Temple in the north of India when I was 20, being initiated. And they have an amazing mind technology, the Tibetans. It is an amazing mind technology. The Kaju sect of Tibetan Buddhism is a profound weaving of what we might call tarot and astrology. They have astrology clues. I don't think they have tarot because it's there in their iconography. And their embodiment of all of the words and visualizations that take place. So I did a lot of work. And what I learned is, and we were also taught Western technologies for mind and body. In 1971, a man named Alexander Lowen wrote a book called The Language of the Body. It was one of the first, and it predated everything we're learning now or accepting now with Vandercock's great work, The Body Keeps the Score, and people starting to understand that the mind is resting on a lot of other cells, and those cells are the body, and the body is actually what is communicating most of the time. And so I worked really hard at trying to regain the sensory basis of my body. Because although I didn't like this teacher, he had something interesting to say. He said that a number of things. One of them was that you, your senses are daywalk. They are angelic. And that basically, if you've organized your senses and they're clear, you really don't suffer too much from anxieties and depressions and so forth. And I thought that's very interesting. What was that word you used? Your senses are day... Daywalk. D-E-V-A. Daywalk. Being of light, it translates as beings of light. And we typically would say angels, but we might say higher self, we might say aliens. I mean, we have a lot of terminology for what is meant here by beings of light. Your senses are beings of light. They can take in the information that is immediately apprehensible, and they can take in information from across distance. And if your body and your senses are organized clearly, you can have an enormous amount of information about past, present, future all at once and about other people and about life itself that in our Western culture, we've lost. I'm not thinking we didn't have it. I think we did at one time, but we lost it somewhere. And so my dedication has been to first healing myself, and that meant diving deep into my own body, doing an awful lot of uh, bioenergetics and dearmoring and various exercises. Um, rebirth breathing, holotropic breathing, and a lot of watching my dreams. And I like to say to people, we are being given gifts every night that are free and are powerful and are direct. And they are the dreams. And we are loved beyond our imagining by the dreamer in each of us that joins to some large dreaming that I can't even begin to tell about because I don't get it, I don't grasp it. 
Dreams, the place where it all started for Charlene and I. When we come back, I tell the story of how a TV network produced my dreams for a show on alternative therapies. And Charlene and I continue our discussion about the power of the body and the need for containment. I wanted to take a short break to invite you to visit my website, mitchellsmolkin.com, where I share with you some tools to understand why intimacy is so misunderstood. I am such a huge believer in having the courage to talk about why so many of us struggle to feel safe when others get close. I believe many people are either confused or have never had someone tell them that their feelings around vulnerability are normal. On my website, you can find resources that discuss these sensitive issues and provide you with tips and information from my years of experience working with thousands of people from around the world who have learned to feel safe, letting others in, and creating strong and lasting connections. If you're enjoying this, please do not forget to subscribe and take a few seconds to review the show. The link is in the show notes. Now, back to my conversation with the woman who helped me create lasting connections. I do want to share quite a unique moment uh, when I think you really introduced me to dream work back then. And we would sit in your home. This is in Musselman's Lake in Ontario, Canada. And I believe you were approached because the women's television network, which was nascent back then, it was just, it was a network that was starting. They were looking to do profiles on alternative therapies. And somehow they found you. Yes. And they asked if you would be open to sharing your work with quote unquote, one of your clients, and you approached me. And you were, of course, very careful to, you know, alter the dreams in a way where where they're, you know, idiosyncratic and personal nature were safeguarded. But nonetheless, they were still my dreams. And this this network went out and produced, filmed at least one, if not two of my dreams. And I still remember one of them involved a bank and an ATM machine and the alarm going off, and also that I was on a bus. And so this network went out and literally filmed, rented a bus, they they filmed a bank, they... <laughs> <laughs> yes, the interpretation. I mean, what a, you know, what an introduction to, uh, to dream work that, look, if you just go to Charlene, then some production company will come along and bring your dream to life. The, the other perhaps more relevant thought that came to mind, which again, I think goes back to what you taught me, or at least introduced me to in terms of containment. And again, this is the second episode of this podcast. And so I want to be clear a little bit about why I'm doing this, which is that and what I hear you talking about is this dislocation between the poetry, the music, the compass, the GPS, the, the real wisdom in our bodies, and how when we are suffering, or we are encountering roadblocks, or your reference earlier to a kind of misguided interpretation of when we cannot adapt, whether it's to work, 
or our families, that 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 is seen as the sickness in our society versus the fact that perhaps we shouldn't or cannot or who we are is not conducive to these environments. You know, Erich Neumann wrote about that, and what's the, I think, Gabor Mate quotes this one, right? It's no great sign of good mental health to be well adapted to a sick society. <laughs> and he took it from someone else. Sorry? Murdy. Yeah. It's Krishnamurti's quote, and I Thank say you. it because it is so little understood in our culture that we are sick because the culture does not serve us, not the other way around. And the sickness is a sign of our health. The maladaptation is telling us, hey, you're, you're better than this, you're more than this. You don't have to be completely tied to a wheel and let it keep running over you and over you. What's amazing to me is the degree to which I'll say we, because I include myself, but the degree to which we turn on ourselves when these alarm bells go off or people who walk in my office and feel so deflated and confused and feel that they are so wrong in the world because all these alarm bells are going off and there is such a quick instinct to treat them as a problem, to resist these profound feelings of sadness, loneliness, death. And I'm just, you know, in, in thinking about talking to you, I just, I'm so curious about this intersection or the way that you experience that when you're working with people. I'm very and, difficult to deal with. <laughs> I'm shocked. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm a storm and I don't advise anyone to come to work. I demand a kind of honesty from people because very often people are actually whining. And they're not whining unjustifiably. There's a child inside them who they have abandoned. And then it's about helping them understand how to recollect the child. But it's also about telling them to listen to their signs and symptoms and say, I will change my life. You see, it's not about, well, we'll fix a few things with a bit of a conversation and you'll go right back to the same life. I'll tell you a, a sort of story from my life that helped me understand this. My mother, God bless her, died of long years of cancer. And when she was first diagnosed, she had a lot of people around her, me included, telling her that she had to change her diet. She had to eat vegetables and brown rice a lot. You know, and we thought, well, you know, like three times a day, basically, which if you're going to help yourself, if you have a disease, you have to change diet that dramatically. She and my father, who diehards from the 1950s, kept opening those tins of cream corn and having those little frozen sausages. And then once or twice a week, they'd have the rice and the vegetables and they thought that would do it and it was heartbreaking to me to watch that lack of understanding of what radical change has to come through life if you want life you have to change in every possible way and your vulnerability increases i i learned today in swedish that because i, I live here now in stockholm and it's quite a northerly country uh vegetables were hard to come by. And so I'm not going to say it correctly, but in Swedish, the word for vegetables, grunsaka, and it literally means green things. Oh my. <laughs> 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 yeah. 
And my, my tutor explained to me that at some point, because there was such a scarcity of, of green things, literally when they saw them, they named them green things. That's the green things, all those green things. <laughs> but you're, I mean, you're talking about how, you know, and I often use the sort of metaphor of the canary in the coal mine, you know, that, that often these, these symptoms and voices that people are aware of, or maybe the existentialists would say that, you know, one is living in bad faith, for instance, when they ignore these things or they sort of come in and they're like, I don't know why I feel so badly. And then they spend the next 60 minutes answering their own question. And I also understand it's not easy. You know, we often have to bear things in our life that we're invested in. You know, I was reflecting that our conversation when I sold my house in Toronto that I loved, that you had your birthday in, that we, you know, in many ways grew up in a different way celebrating in. And, you know, the most lovely thing about you, and I think I was telling this to somebody recently, is that when I called you and I was on my knees with the grief of letting go of that home, you cried with me and you talked about leaving your home. In, in Idaho? No, in... Idaho. It was in Idaho. Yeah. 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 Very difficult. Yes. Very, very painful. Yes. And what's interesting to me in those moments is that, I mean, you and I can sit here and we could talk for a very long time about people that we mutually respect who have contributed in, in incredible ways to understanding suffering, understanding how to deepen our relationship to our life experience and how to cut through a lot of what confuses us about the, the strength and depth of, of the tremors in us. And I think that's to your analogy about religion. And, and I come from the Jewish tradition and I have a lot of respect for the fact that death is brought up very often and talked about. And it reminds me in some ways how, how that must have worked in the sense of keeping people connected all the time to that cycle in our life. But besides all the theories and all the conversation, it's that when, when you can vibrate with someone else, when, and you said earlier something like about people you trust or people you love that you I can feel them over time and space. You can feel them over time and space. Yep. And with clients, I don't bother calling them. I always just hear them in my head. I know they're thinking of me and then they show up. Can I you call me when I'm running late for the bus and just to... I keep you on lock. I actually did have a client who I would call periodically and say to her, it's time for you to do some work with me again. And she thought that was hilariously funny. But I don't know that that's totally appropriate. But then again, I've never played according sure. to the rules. Sure. I don't have private practice for 25 years because I was told that this was what I, I was to do. So I did. I'm, I'm sure I've told you this story, and, and I'll try and tell it in as succinct a way possible. But it, it, 
I have not had many of these moments in my life. I do have moments where I think about a client or a couple and realize that I haven't heard from them or, you know, and then literally the next day, and this happens all the time. That's what I'm talking about. When they come into mind. Exactly. But a more profound version of that for me was when it was a Wednesday night and I'm not prone to toothaches. In fact, this was the only time in my life, knock on wood, that I had a a toothache so severe I couldn't sleep. I rarely take Tylenol, but I, I just had to to survive this. And I go to work in the morning and around 11 a.m. I get a phone call that my grandmother had passed away in her sleep that night. And I hopped in the car and realized the toothache went away. It almost seemed like as soon as I got this news, something registered that this is what this was about. And she was at a stage in her life where she was on a lot of medication for arthritis and other ailments. And I lay with her in her bed. She had wanted to die at home in this way, in a very dignified way. And I was the first one to arrive. And it was one of the most special moments in my life to lie next to her and stroke her hair and sing to her. And fast forward a few days later to Monday evening. And we were at, this is the last night of the Shiva. This is the days where you sit and you mourn together. And my tooth faintly hurt again, about, you know, a third of the pain that I'd had the week before. And I turned to Sylvia, my wife, and I said, my tooth's hurting. And she says, oh, I hope, I hope someone isn't dying. And we go home an hour later, lying in bed, the phone rings and it's my cousin in Mexico. And she says, your great aunt just died. (laughs) I looked at Sylvia and she was white as a ghost. And these women, these women survived the Holocaust together almost 5,000 kilometers from where they were from as refugees in Kazakhstan. And then, of course, through the course of time, you know, one moved to Mexico, one moved to Canada. And, and I know, you know, I, I know this was for real, that something physically, oh, yeah. You know, we have a reference in our bodies that we call emotion. But emotion at its high, it's like a keyboard on piano. And at its high notes, it's actually, it will, it will become physical. Or at its low notes, it may become physical. And the low notes, you might think in terms of um, autoimmune disease or diabetes or something. That is a conglomeration of unresolved emotional energy. But likewise, it, it can happen at the high energy of a high, the high level, the high notes of the piano that the emotional energies resonate through the physical and will bring us information, right? So I was on the phone to somebody. I was giving them my phone number. I was in Idaho. And my home phone number in Canada, my parents' phone number, came out of my mouth. And then I saw it in a ticker tape across my eyes. And I said to the person, I have to get off the phone. I got off the phone. I picked up the phone and called home. And my grandmother had just died. So these are, what I say, the Celtic inheritances are about understanding that this is not anything except what's usual when the container is cleansed. 
when the container is cleansed, we are in a state of what I like to call spiritual anarchy, which means we are our own being and we are connected to higher energies. And those higher energies resonate through our bodies and they tell us what we need to know. And if they're not saying anything, it's because you don't need to do anything. You just have to sit. And that's hard for me because I get very impatient. But there you go. I have to learn patience, right? So there's a way in which we are never separated from that which brought us here. And that is so vitally important to take on as not just a belief, which implies maybe, may not be, but as truth. The truth of your being, whoever you are, is that you are here and you've never been separated. When we got born, even though we call it a trauma, we got born physically, we sort of separated from mom. And if she's a really good mom, we don't have to really separate for three years or maybe longer. But we're never separated from that which actually brought us here. That higher energy is infused in every cell of our bodies. And the whole point of having the container cleansed of the emotional detritus of this lifetime. So you can imagine I'm talking from experience, rape, torture, my brother raped me, my mother used to beat us. 1950s, everybody got beaten. It wasn't that unusual. We've made light years of change around how we raise children now, thank goodness. But I've done a lot of work to know that when we clear the container, the body, all of these other abilities are innate. It's like the fine-tuning of a beautiful piano. It doesn't sound right if it's keys are out of whack, but when you give it a tuning and you clean it up and you polish it, you love that, that machine, that beautiful piano, the sound that come out of there is heavenly. And so it is, you know, we have these abilities. Can I go back a sec? Okay. You talked about the 1950s and the experience that you had in your home. Mm -hmm. And you had a brother. Yes, I still do apparently, but I haven't spoken to him in decades. I don't know where he is, I don't care. It almost felt to me a little bit like when you said those are the 1950s and this is what happened. That that either minimizes or, or you know, and, and fair enough, right? Different generations had different ways of, you know, but I'm aware even to this day that, that these kinds of things go on and working even in Sweden with so many different people from different cultures, I'm acutely aware how our relationship to the challenges of parenting get translated through culture in that. But I have to imagine that that was very difficult. And, I, and I'm curious, do you know how your brother dealt with that? Oh, he's a pervert. He went on to abuse other girls. Yeah, he didn't do any work, didn't fix it. He just, you see, I believe fully that our time demands that some of us stand as a wall, permeable, but a wall between what happened in history, what we call our lineage, my lineage, which is really the history of the, the humanity that we are. We have to stand as a wall to that and cleanse ourselves so that we don't pass it on to the next generation. Because I will tell you, we know from epigenetics, but it is a law. I don't know much in this world, but if you are carrying some undisclosed problem and pain in your own body, your child will manifest something right into your face. So the best thing you can do as a parent is get busy doing your own work. 
and my brother, as far as I know, even though he traveled around with the same teacher and, you know, whatever, but I don't, I don't see any change. The changes that happen when you actually do the work are visible to everyone. In fact, the Jungians call it psychic activation. That when you cleanse a part of your own container, your own body, your own history, and you really go through, like for me, I had to go through a lot of hours of sweating and crying and terror because I had to release enough of the terror of being tied to a chair and having cigarettes brought to my face and then not put on my face, but on my back and my arms. I had to accept all that and, and release the emotion. The lucky thing is you don't have to go through every, every moment of it. You just really need enough of it. So that when I talk about it now, it is really to me just a memory. Sure. It is not, it is not a, a huge deal. But if I'm talking with someone else who still has that emotional energy and has been hurt badly, I will cry. I will em- embrace mm. them because I know that part of hell. You see, and one of the things I will say to clients who sometimes need me to say this, or I feel they do. You may be in hell, but if you look over there, my initials are on that pillar. I can't get you out of hell, but I can tell you I've been here. Mm-hmm. I know what the, some of the puddles are, some of the geography, and I know there's a way out. There is definitely a way out. You see, So all of that that happened to me, the only reason it's of any use whatsoever, the only dignity in all of that suffering that I went through is that I could help other people. When I was listening to you just now, I was reflecting how even to this day when I do yoga, I will routinely fall into grief and feel this incredible need to cry. And and, and I know, I can feel, and I think a lot of people who I work with and, you know, it's it's an incredible feeling of of helplessness when one can't put words or have images for one's pain and yet there's an incredible need to allow that to unfold yes and which i think is it's very demanding but i think there's a respect that has to be given to what we don't know and what's coming out of us and just to trust that there's a reason <laughs> why I brought up Nick is that we went, as you know, and your son went there too, to this arts high school, Unionville High School in in Markham, Ontario. And we were in this theater program. And can you imagine that we were in grade 10 or 11? And this man, Peter Jarvis, who was this artist in Toronto, was invited to come to our high school and do these full-day workshops with us where the morning was spent getting into our bodies and bringing ourselves to a kind of primal scream until we were crying and I don't know what. (laughs) And then the afternoons were spent making masks based on our morning experience. And I want to go into every high school around the world and do this with teenagers because it looking back i mean it it set the stage in some ways again for this incredible dignity for this chaos and this anarchy that you talk about you know to be invited in to feel these things 
um, anyway, I have a huge amount of respect and I worry in some ways that the current climate wouldn't be able to tolerate, you know, maybe I'm, I'm underestimating things, but I, I think in some ways the current climate wouldn't be able to tolerate such incredible risk in terms of taking young people to these, this extent of pain. It would be seen as some kind of torture or something. And it, I think it did set us up individually in many ways for a kind of respect for this immensity of emotional experience. And I think that in a roundabout way, you know, not to minimize what you're talking about, but I feel like that's what you're trying to bring in these spaces to uh, create the capacity to tolerate this kind of anguish. Oh, yes, yes. And and it wouldn't have been tolerated even in your day. The other high schools didn't have the place for a reason. You see, there's a book by a man named uh, Wilhelm Reich, Listen, Little Man. He also wrote a book called The Function of the Orgasm. And of course, they put him in an institution because he was crazy. And the reason he was crazy, yeah, he might have gone too far. I don't know enough about it to say they, all the authorities were wrong. But he threatened them because he believed that if you could have full body orgasm, you could be, you would be in a state of relative anarchy, meaning you'd be kind to other people and there would be a natural order that might evolve. He probably took his ideas a little bit too far because I don't know that we're all ready for that. But it's a fabulous, those are two fabulous books to read to get an idea of some of the visionary qualities that have been um, less than advertised, we say, in our culture, but have been kind of shuffled under the carpet so that nobody really knows. And, and indeed, our education system suffers because the kids in it suffer because so many of them are deeply depressed, suicidal, and in need of exactly what you're talking about, Mitch, of a, of a place to creatively express and a place to go deeper in their own beings. Because in our history, that was the time, 16 years old, that was the time hmm. for the initiations, for the deepening, for the maturing. And as has been noted many, many places that we don't have those, we don't have initiations, we don't have anything. And it's very barren for the psyche, for the soul. You know, there are all these statistics on these uh, exponential increases in anxiety disorders, and especially among university students. And, you know, these conclusions that, well, things must be more stressful or there's more pressure. And I'm always careful to point out that when I think about this or talk about this, it isn't by no means meant to diminish or, or underestimate what people are going through and what it means to go through that rite of passage. But it, it strikes me now that when you, when you go to university or undergraduate school, there are people standing there with pamphlets that say, look, if you, if you have anxiety or if you're struggling, please call, call this number. And of course, the whole reason you and I are sitting here together is because you were there for me in a time of need. In fact, I remember standing in my parents' kitchen on the phone with you, full of anxiety, and you told me to grab a pillow and put it on my body to protect myself. And so it would be very short-sighted of me to somehow critique <laughs> or ridicule attempts on a societal level to honor in people's difficulty. I think where it becomes misguided is that 
is that what essentially is being said is this is a problem, that the fact that you are feeling anxious or struggling or lost. I mean, I wasn't, you know, first year university, I had no idea where I was going. And I don't know. I mean, I think about this inheritance, not just not just our religious inheritance, of course, but our inheritance of literature, of film, you know, the things that captivate us, the things that draw us into these stories. I mean, we're so willing to suspend our animation and be inspired by others. But of course, when it comes to our own challenges, we we immediately worry that something is terribly wrong. <laughs> and and has gone wrong. And that's such an interesting dichotomy for me that, that on the one hand, one will sit in a theater and come out emboldened by the, the incredible travails of their, you know, hero. And yet if we wake up in the middle of the night, we think we have a sleep disorder or something, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and maybe just maybe there's something. Hmm? Where is the hero inside of us? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, um, People have abandoned the personal, and that's at our detriment. Everyone wants to be a thought leader. Everyone wants to be out, out there, got to be out there, you know, just out there. And I have, that's the collective demand. I have it in myself. It's one of the demons that I don't feed too often or try not to, because it's a false belief. But we have been thrown into a world. We've been thrown into the planet out of our villages and we have to find a way back to the village so we can have neighbors that we know their lives we know how mm. their parents pass away we go to the memorials when we need a tool we borrow from them they know us and can tease us about our idiosyncrasies and and you know if we can't literally gather around a fire and hang out with each other we need to have that feeling with our neighbors People in the U.S. move on the average every five years. Mm -hmm. Where are you going to find your village? Where is your village? And, and the people in the families, where's the village? Where's the just being a small person and being okay with that and getting into enough shenanigans with a tiny little personal life, you know? Having a dirty little life right now is probably the hardest thing in the world because everything and everybody's pushing you to go out there and do this and be bigger, be bigger, be bigger, be big. Well, there is no bigger. You know, it, 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 it's really, I think, one of the sicknesses that we have inherited. But I also think that it's part of the growing into awareness of our planet as our village. And so we have mm. to go through the growing pain mm. and establish what is it that's common about everyone. You, you know, there, there are a lot of tensions, I think, in what you're talking about and one in particular that stands out is, on the one hand, a kind of longing. And this I reference in the first podcast where Gabor Mate used to talk about this idea of the circle of kin. I heard him talk about it probably 20 years ago. The idea that you're talking about, you know, that the, the, the larger our circle of kin, the more we know that people have our back. The more we know our neighbors, if if our child is crying and we're exhausted, 
there's a friend or a cousin or an aunt or you know someone that can pick them up versus this this kind of fluidity or liquidity that we live in where there's there's a kind of dislocation around moving and and yeah. and yet on the other hand on the other hand there's this incredible experience that you bring from having left your home that's right and a perspective that that obviously is very important to you and very important to me having moved and left canada and Traveled a great deal this morning. The fact that we can connect in this way. I have two more questions, just so people can understand or get to know you a bit better. When it seems to me that becoming a psychotherapist was very much a kind of organic, natural progression in your life. Mm -hmm. Was there a moment when that became clearer to you, or was it something that just evolved as you? did your work and engaged in that way? No, it was really hard. I mean, I, I, I was a teacher for eight years at Sheridan College. And you know, in Canada, if you are a government employee, you always have safety of employment. You never get fired. They fired a, ten, a, a quarter of the faculty in one fell swoop. The unheard of took place, but that's the nature of my life, always the unusual. And I had already understood about a year earlier, or maybe two years earlier, that I was asking, is this it? I, after everything that happened, I become a teacher, and that's where I go for the next two decades, two and a half decades, three decades. And it felt too small, but I put it away because I like the security. I'm like anyone. I liked, you know, I like the package. Package was very reassuring, and it gave me a title and. And when, when the job was taken away and um, they fired a quarter of the faculty and I was one of them, not once but twice, they fired, brought us back, then fired us again. And I was told that I could be rehired, but I went, no. And I was absolutely at a point of my whole life changing. My son was leaving. My second marriage was leaving also. Um, and I didn't have my career anymore. So there was this very human, very powerful pressure to try to sort out what I was going to do. And I was terrified because I was alone in a way I hadn't been since I'd had Chad. He was left and moved. And I I was alone because I didn't have the partner and the stability of that. And I went into having to deal with anxiety at a level I'd never known. So I brought out my astrology chart and I looked at it and I said, now, Char, I've been doing astrology since I was about 18. If you saw this chart in front of you, what would you tell the person? And I went, well, they should be doing some kind of healing work. That's a, it's a Mars, Uranus, prime that sextiles off to Venus in the first house, almost on the ascendant. And I went, that's what I have to do now. I just have to wait. And then I started getting higher impulses that told me what I needed to do. They said, don't advertise anything. So the whole business of the Women's Network was just completely out of left field to me. Mm-hmm. I had hardly any advertising. And and sure enough, they said, go to this one place, talk to that one person. And that one person began my, my client base. And a quarter of a century later, uh, we've made it through and <laughs> managed to hold house and hold home together. And <laughs> you know, that's about all that can be said about it, really. What has surprised um, you the most about this work? What surprised me the most? Yeah. How, how much it, it involves something that doesn't belong to me. 
how much it comes from someplace I don't own. The more I rest in that, the easier it gets, the mm. more everything is, including finances, everything. But it's hard for me to rest there because I keep thinking I should be involved more. <laughs> controlling things, I guess. <laughs> Steering the ship. But it isn't true. Over and over again, I find it isn't true that I just have to... I have glimpses of that as I get as I get older and reflect on the way things go and how it distinctly feels like it is not my own. It's like, you know, you, you think. <laughs> Something else knows what it's doing. You think you're kind of making this all happen, but um, no, if you no. just take a back seat a little bit. <laughs> That's right. Open up what else there is. Lastly, what what keeps you up at night? Love. That's the big question in my life is what is love? How can I perform it better? Hmm. How can I perform it better? I don't have any answers. I just have a lot of questions. I'm confused by it. I think it's one of the big ones. You know, I felt something interesting changing inside of me as I have been taking more risks with this work, meeting with you, writing more, and I noticed that I started to soften. I can't put my finger on it, but because we often talk about the other Right? We often talk about accepting and, and these notions that you're talking about, but going out into the world and meeting other people. But it strikes me how difficult that really is, how, how easy it is on a daily basis to get annoyed with the person who's in front of you on the street or shopping at the grocery store or a politician or, you know, that, that, it strikes me there's an incredible distance between what we talk about in the absolute about respect. And then if we actually reflect on our daily lives and how often we allow ourselves to reject, <laughs> you know, never mind the people that are in our, our own home. And, and so I, I don't really know what I'm saying aside from that, instead of just being humbled by that, I, that idea of what it takes to collect ourselves. And, um, well, I think that to, to, uh, speak to that i think that's a very powerful point and it's like the trauma of the present people speak about trauma as though it's in the past but it isn't you're living in the trauma now and you clear the trauma from the past so that you can then begin to look at what traumatizes me or what upsets me now and therefore what do i need to release what do i need to let go of how can i work with this do i need to let that person go from my life i don't think it's a one way street that it's all about me or what i'm doing in here sometimes you have to let go of a person or an activity or a circumstance but you but to take a position that says whatever is rising in my life is coming from an internal whatever i'm magnetized to comes from an internal source and it is here to teach me it's here to teach me and my job is to try to respect enough to treat with respect and make a decision if I need a decision. I hope that sort of addresses what you're saying. Try to see um, past what just the material moment is, but to embrace the trauma of the present moment. It reminds me, it's a bit different, but Artie Lang oh, yes. wrote The Divided Self, and he has this great story in there about a young woman that came to see him. And she was... Uh, hallucinating talk about these hallucinations of things melting at home and chairs melting and and he knew that she was being sexually abused and 
Turns out she was being sexually abused by her father. And so he arranged to have her protected, to get her out of the house. And he said to her, you're going to study martial arts. And until you feel like you can walk back in that house and protect yourself, you're not walking back in that house. Two years later, she I don't remember if she contacts him or she tells him about it after, but she she feels like she can go back in the house and she walks in the door and stares her father in the face and says, you're never going to fucking touch me again. And, and R.D. Lang writes and he says, you know, therapy is not about whether we can survive the past. No. Therapy is about whether we can survive the future. I like that. <laughs> He's not worried if she can deal with what happened to her three years ago. He, he knows that she needs to know that she can survive this afternoon. That's right. Or as you say, you know, how we find ourselves in our situation or in the present. Well, it reminds me of a funny story from my book about being in Australia. And I was living in the slums with a group of travelers I was traveling with. And I was working in a bar that was being trans transformed from a really bit of a dive into a more better class bar. And Australian men are, let me say, they are uh, attracted uh, almost obsessively to female form and I had these long legs and a short skirt because I had to wear them for the bar and uh, some Australian guy was sitting there with his friend and uh, oh where are you from Canada oh you're cold Canadians are all cold he put his hand on my thigh so I told his friend tell him to take his hand off me or I will pour this beer on his head have the bar <laughs> like this and the friend looks at and I said, I think she means it. He goes, oh, she's just a Sheila. And I pour the whole thing. Out. <laughs> <laughs> it was a great, it was liberating. <laughs> and then he started complaining. He's all wet. And he's belly aching to the bartender who happens to be the owner who's from Georgia. And he loves me. His name, his name was Tom. And he just thinks this is so funny. And, and this Australian guy's going, Oh, tell, she's fired. She's look what she did. Tom said, "I'm not going to fire her. She's a good waitress. My advice to you is keep your hands off her." <laughs> That's in my, my possible life: trauma, travel, and transcendence. I've learned a lot today talking to you, especially you know you put into language certainly some of the feelings I have about this work that I'm doing, putting this podcast out there and, you know, really having to get out of my own way. And that's certainly what it feels like. But I appreciate your humility when it comes to your own writing. And But I will nonetheless make sure that in the notes to the podcast, people can find you. You have your own podcast. Yes? Yes. And today I just began the new podcast format of teaching meditation. So anyone who's interested, it's very short, 15, 20 minutes, and I actually meditate with you. It's a long period of silence <laughs> on the tape. But I thought, you should know, I'm meditating with you. I believe this will help, help people or help them feel more grounded in the meditation if they know I'm meditating. So we do five-minute meditation. And that's a whole part of your life that we didn't have time to get into today. But would you come back in the future and talk with me more about meditation because it certainly came up earlier when you were talking about how you had 
transcended so much i was it was clear to me that that was a huge part of your life and what it helped you create space so would you i'd love for you to come back if you would back anytime thank you so much for this opportunity thank you virtual hearts and the world great love thanks sure <laughs> what a ride If you stayed with me right to the end, thank you so much. I had to listen to my conversation with Charlene many times to really hear and learn to listen to the depth of her perspective. I hope you will come back to this too if it's helped clarify things or inspire you to think more deeply about how we manage our grief and go through difficult life transitions. Don't forget to visit my webpage, mitchellsmolkin.com, for more resources about why transitions, intimacy, and vulnerability can be so counterintuitively difficult. Thank you again for joining me today. I remain faithfully yours.